And our passage this morning, 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11, is really a conclusion of what Peter started saying in chapter 2, verse 11. So this is kind of the, the summary or the conclusion to this big thought that he's been communicating. And the big idea of our passage this morning is that those who have the attitude that Christ had towards suffering will respond well to suffering. And so those that have his attitude will respond as he did. They'll respond well. Another way to put it, those with the mindset of Christ will respond to suffering in a way that glorifies God. And so that's what we want this morning. In verses 1 through 6, we're going to see what it means to have the mindset of Christ when we suffer. And then in verses 7 through 11, we're going to see what does it look like to suffer in a way that glorifies God. And so I'm going to read our entire passage, but before we do that, if you would join me as we pray and ask for God's help. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for bringing us together, both believers, those that love you, and unbelievers, those who do not know you. I pray that you would speak to each of us through your word this morning, that you would speak your words of grace through me, that you would open our hearts to receive what you have to say. Thanks for the example we have in Christ, who was willing to obey you, even though it meant suffering for him. And so help us to do the same, to follow his example. I pray you would grow our trust and our love for you this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to read our passage, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And God's word says this. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look at what Peter says first in verse 1. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And so Ben says this all the time. I'll say it again. Whenever we see the word therefore, we need to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? 
Anytime we see or hear the word therefore, we know that that person is referring to what they've communicated previously. So in chapter 4, verse 1, Peter's pointing back to what he had just said in chapter 3. So let's take a glance at that. Then the question becomes, what did he just say? And so what he just said was this, chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So in chapter 4, verse 1, when Peter refers to Christ's suffering in the flesh, this is what he has in his mind. It's Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. It's the righteous laying down his life for the unrighteous. And this is a dominant idea throughout the letter. You'll see it over and over again. Every time he gives a list of commands and says, live this way, he always centers it and comes back to the gospel. And so the gospel is what motivates us and empowers us to live a life that glorifies God. That's a dominant idea throughout the letter. It's Jesus Christ, in order to accomplish salvation for his people, was willing to suffer. He was willing to be shamed, mocked, beaten, and tortured by other human beings. The same human beings that he had created in his own image. Imagine that. And more than that, Jesus was willing to drink the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. That was really the worst part of the cross. The divine punishment that we deserve, he took upon himself. So when Peter says that Christ also suffered in the flesh, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus' death in our place. Look at what he says next. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. In other words, Prepare yourselves. Get ready. This is almost like, like the language you would use when somebody's about to go into battle. Get ready for battle. Make sure you have the weapon you need in order to fight. And so what is your weapon? What's our weapon? He says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves with Christ's way of of thinking about suffering. Your weapon to live this life with is to have the same attitude and the same approach to suffering that Christ had. Now, if we're going to do that, and if these believers were going to do that, they first have to understand what the mindset is. What is this mindset that Christ had towards suffering? It isn't just a set of behaviors. It's not a personality type. It's a mindset. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of thinking about God, which affects the way we see ourselves, and it changes the way we see others as well. So that's the mindset towards suffering that he wants these believers to have. And remember who he's writing to. He's writing to a group of suffering believers, and they don't know it, but the suffering's about to get a lot worse. And so... That's what we need to understand. We need to understand what was the mindset that Christ had when it came to suffering. And there are so many passages that we could look at in both the Old and New Testament. Philippians 2 is probably the best in all of the Bible when you talk about the humility that Christ displayed when he became a man and died on a cross. 
So if you want to read that later, unfortunately we don't have time to look at it now, but Philippians 2. But perhaps the best place to look is in 1 Peter itself. And this is probably what Peter had in mind anyway. So let's turn to chapter 2. I want us to look back at verses 21 to 23. And Josh Harris preached on this passage, I think, three weeks ago. And in this part of the letter, Peter is speaking specifically to believers that were slaves at that time. He encourages them to submit to their masters and to treat them with respect, even when they're mistreated. And then he explains that this was Christ's approach to suffering as well. So let's read verses 21 to 23. God's word says this, For to this you have been called, and that is, you've been called to suffering, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. There it is again, follow Christ, so that you might have the same approach to suffering that he did. And here was the approach, verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And this is the most important part, the end of verse 22. But he continued, end of verse 23, excuse me. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so what's the mindset that Christ had when he faced suffering? In order to suffer well, without grumbling or complaining or Perhaps the worst thing we could do is just quit. In order to suffer well, what did Jesus do? The answer to that question we see in this passage is he trusted his father. He knew his father. He loved his father. And in his toughest moments, he trusted his father. Verse 23 Look at this again. He says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. That is, when he was insulted and mistreated, he didn't retaliate. He didn't fight back. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. That's amazing. Keep in mind who we're talking about. We're not talking about a normal dude. We're talking about the eternal son of God. We're talking about the creator of the universe, the one who has no beginning. When he suffered, he did not threaten. The Jewish leaders, the Roman guards, all the people that mocked him and spit on him, Jesus could have killed all of these people without even lifting a finger. That's who we're talking about. We're talking about the lion who is also the lamb. Jesus is God Almighty. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 1, talking about Jesus, he says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, 
and in him all things hold together. The writer of Hebrews, he starts his letter the same way. He says this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the eternal God. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of the universe. He upholds the universe by the authority of his words. And the most stunning and surprising and the most glorious truth in all of the Bible is that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, was willing to humble himself to the point of dying on a cross for sinners. You could search the entire universe forever for a truth greater than that, and you would not find it. That's, that's the most glorious truth we can hear about God, is that the lion, the ruler of the universe, the king of the world, is also the suffering servant. He's the lamb of God who was slain for sinners. And I'll just read verse 23 again. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Now what enabled him to suffer this way? We see it at the end of verse 23. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus trusted his Father. And that's what motivated him to go to the cross on our behalf. And because of what Jesus did for us, you and I can have the same mindset that Christ had when it comes to suffering. Peter would not have written this letter if it wasn't possible for these readers to have the same mindset that Christ had. That's why Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. My wife, Emily, and I, we recently were blessed to be able to buy a house. And I mean that. We didn't, we didn't think we'd be able to, at least not this early on. So we were blessed. We bought a house. We closed on it a couple weeks ago, and we love it. And before we started looking, all we had heard was that buying a house was one of the most stressful things that you can do. And so I don't know about you, but I'm not a big fan of stress. I normally run the other way. And that's probably why it took us so long to buy a house, honestly. Uh, so that's what we had heard. So, so my mindset going in was I need to talk to people that have done this before so that I can get ready, so that I can be prepared for whatever happens. So that's what Emily and I did. We talked to a few different people, and the first thing we heard was that having a good real estate agent is essential for buying a house unless you know what you're doing. And so that was step one. Step two, or, or the second thing people told us was expect the unexpected. They said nothing's going to go exactly according to plan. There's going to be hiccups. There's going to be speed bumps. And so that's exactly what happened, but we were ready. And then finally, my brother told me, be patient and enjoy the process. And so that's what we were able to do. Now, we didn't have to be that patient. We actually bought the first house we looked at. It just worked out like that. But we were ready uh, regardless. And so why did Emily and I do this? It's because we knew we were about to face a potentially stressful situation And so we wanted to have the right mindset. We wanted to respond well and be able to make a good decision. We're talking about a lot of money 
there. In the same way as believers in Christ, you and I should want to have the same mindset towards suffering that Christ had because we are all going to suffer in some way. Many of you in this room are suffering currently. And so it's important for us to have the mindset that Christ had. And so what is that mindset? We saw it in our passage. He trusted his father. And so may we do the same. Let's continue our passage. We're still in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What Peter says here is that the person that has become willing to obey God, even if it leads to suffering, that person has ceased from sin. And so what does he mean when he says cease from sin? I think it'd probably be better or more helpful to ask what it doesn't mean. What do do we know from other parts of the Bible or the rest of this letter that'll help us understand what he's saying when he says cease from sin? we, We know what he's not saying. He's not saying that this person is perfect, that they're no longer a sinner, that they no longer struggle with sin. You look down just a few verses He tells them, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And so this implies that they are going to sin against each other. So he's not talking about perfection. So what is he talking about then? I think he tells us in the very next verse. Let's look at that. He says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, that is the rest of your life, No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so we've already seen this in the letter. Chapter 1, he says, be holy because God is holy. So the person that has meditated on the humility of Christ and has been deeply impacted by how Christ was willing to suffer on our behalf and has now adopted the same mindset that Christ had in trusting themselves to the Father... This person has ceased from a lifestyle of sin. What he's saying is that being willing to obey God from the heart, even if it leads to suffering, this is a sign of a believer in Christ. This is a sign of someone who knows Christ and who trusts him. There was a guy named Charles Blondin. He lived from 1824 to 1897. He was from France, and he was a world-famous tightrope walker. He was, just to put it into perspective for you, he was like the LeBron James of tightrope walking, okay? World-famous. This amazing guy traveled all over the world, and one of the things that he's most famous for is he, he set up shop at Niagara Falls one time, attracted a big crowd. He strung a rope from one side of Niagara Falls to the other, And it was about 1,100 feet across. And so thousands of people came to watch him walk across this tightrope. And so that's what he did. He walked across once. Everybody cheered. And then he put on a blindfold. And he walked back across. Everybody was blown away. And then he, his, his manager actually got on his back. And he walked across again with his manager on his back. 
And then he put on some stilts on his legs. Not just high heels, but stilts. And he walked across again. And so people are just going crazy. And so he walks over to the crowd and he says, Do you believe that I can pick up this wheelbarrow and push it across the tightrope? And so you know the crowd went crazy. They're excited. They say, Yes, of course you can. You're the greatest. And so then he asked them, Do you believe that I can carry someone to the other side in this wheelbarrow? And you know the response. They said, Yes, absolutely. You're the greatest. And then things got real because he looked at the crowd and he said, Which one of you is willing to get in the wheelbarrow? And silence hit the crowd. Nobody said anything. It is one thing to stand on the sidelines and cheer for Charles Blondin, to to scream out things like, You're amazing, you're the greatest. You can do anything, but it's an entirely different thing to be willing to entrust your life to Charles Blondin. In the same way, Peter is saying, the person that has suffered in the flesh, the person that is willing to obey the Father, even if it means they'll suffer for it, that's a person who truly knows and trusts God. This person has ceased from a lifestyle of sin. They are a follower of Christ. Verse 3, they are, they are done with the old way of living. That's what he says next. Verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This part of the letter provides one of those little clues that leads us to believe that Peter is writing mostly to a Gentile audience or those without a Jewish background or a Jewish heritage. And that's because what he's communicating here is that these believers had once lived like that, but now they're called to live differently. Just as he said in verse 2, he said, They're called to live no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so what he says is, your old friends aren't just surprised when you do this. They aren't just surprised that you now live differently. They're actually offended by that. Peter says, they malign you. They speak ill of you. They gossip about you. They mistreat you. They slander your reputation. And I'm sure some of you in some way have experienced this when you became a believer. Maybe it was your parents that were offended. Maybe they felt judged by you, like you were now saying that that they raised you wrong. Or maybe it was a, a group of old friends that began to distance themselves from you and to speak bad about you. It's important for us to understand that If we live lifestyles of obedience to Christ, some people will be offended by it. It's going to bother some people. Not everybody's going to pat you on the back. Our job is to be faithful and obedient, even if we are mistreated because of it. 
But we need to understand that some people will be offended so that when it happens, we're ready. This is a part of having the mindset that Christ had when he suffered, is being ready when stuff like this happens. We see an important part of that mindset in verse 5. Let's take a look at this. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. An essential part of having the mindset of Christ is understanding this truth. God is the ultimate judge in the universe. God is the ultimate judge in the universe. The sovereign God who rules and reigns, who knows everything, who is infinitely wise and immeasurably good, he's the ultimate judge, which means this. Nobody's getting away with anything. Nobody's getting away with anything. And this is, this is why we feel the need to retaliate, isn't it? We feel the need to fight back and hurt others when we've been hurt. What we're really saying is, I'm not going to let them get away with that. I'm not going to let it happen. But what we need to understand is nobody's getting away with anything. There are no secret sins. God sees everything. The person that mistreats you or slanders you or makes your life difficult, they're not getting away with that. It may seem for a little while like they're getting away with it, but they're not. Jesus knew this when he suffered. If you'll think back to verse 23, we looked at it earlier, chapter 2. Jesus continued entrusting himself to who? To him who judges justly. That's an interesting way to put it. He could have just said Jesus continued entrusting himself to the Father. But it's to him who judges justly. Jesus trusted his Father And his father is the judge. And now Peter is telling these believers, those people that are mistreating you, they are going to have to answer to the judge on judgment day. They're not getting away with anything. Someone is going to pay the penalty for the sin that is being committed against you. God will not sweep anything under the rug. That would not be just. We don't want that from a judge. We want a judge who's going to be honest, and that's who God is. So either the people that are mistreating you are going to suffer the penalty of their sin, which is an eternity in hell separated from God's goodness. Either they're going to face that penalty, or their sin will have been placed on Jesus Christ, and he will have died for their sin. He will have taken the punishment that they deserve. Those are the two options on judgment day. Either you pay the penalty yourself or Jesus pays it for you with his death on the cross. And what this means is that you and I can forgive. This is an essential part of forgiveness. We can forgive those who mistreat us. We don't need to retaliate when we're mistreated. We can respond to mistreatment like Jesus did. It's not that we're forgetting about it. It's not that we're just sweeping it under the rug and acting like it never happened. 
And in a very limited way, we can often punish people that commit crimes and hurt other people. So that happens, but nobody's getting away with anything. It's because God is the ultimate judge of the universe. Paul, the apostle, he wrote the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 12, verses 19 to 21, he says this idea in this way. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's essential for us to understand that God is the ultimate judge. We can trust him with justice in the universe. We don't have to retaliate. Let's look at verse 6. Back to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6. I'll read the end of verse 5 first. Peter says, But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And so last week, Ben reminded all of us that all of Scripture is inspired by God, but not all of it is very clear. And so this is another example of that truth, uh, this verse. When Peter says the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, some scholars think that he's continuing his thought from the, pe- the previous passage and that he's talking about Noah's family. Remember Ben talked about that last week? So in other words, the gospel was preached through Noah. His family responded by getting in the boat, so they were saved from the flood. And so in this way, the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. That's one option. Another option, and the one that I kind of lean towards, is that Peter is talking about believers in Christ that have died before the return of Christ. So even though they passed away, they're alive in the spirit with God. That's what he's saying. So this would have been a comfort to Peter's audience. But honestly, regardless of which group of dead people he's referring to, whether it's those from Noah's time or from the first century, let's not miss what he just said. And I'm going to paraphrase what he just said. He says, your old friends are surprised when you don't join them in the same lifestyle of sin that you used to live, and they're offended. So they malign you. But don't retaliate. Don't fight back because they're not getting away with anything. They must stand before God on judgment day. And now he says, this is why the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. What he's saying is, is that the gospel is the only way to be made right with God. It's the only way that you and I can have our sins forgiven. It's the only way that we can stand before God on judgment day and get a verdict of not guilty. The gospel's our only hope. This is why the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. Question one of the New City Catechism. It's something that Tim Keller and D.A. Carson and a bunch of scholars, they combined a bunch of old catechisms. If you know what those are, they're like statement of 
beliefs. And so they combined it uh, to, to create the New City Catechism. Question number one of that is, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer to that question is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So whether you're alive or dead when Jesus returns, the gospel is your only hope to stand before him on judgment day. This is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's look at the rest of our passage, starting in verse 7. Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So how does a group of believers in Christ, those that are exiles, those that don't belong, they're being mistreated, how does a group like that survive? Not just for a few years, but for thousands of years. How does the Christian church survive? Peter tells us what the secret to survival is in this passage. He says, you must love one another. This is how we're going to make it. The first thing he says is, the end of all things is at hand. In other words, Jesus could return at any moment. The judgment day we talked about, it could be today. It could be tomorrow. The end of all things is at hand. And then he says, therefore. So the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, do this. Practice self-control and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Peter knows that if these believers are going to love each other, then it's important that they pray for one another. That's one of the primary ways that we can love one another is by praying for each other. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, above all, whenever we see a phrase like this, we should pause. Because what he's doing, he's, he's emphasizing what he's about to say. It's as if he's saying, if you guys don't do anything else that I say in this letter, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. And I love this. He says, since love covers a multitude of sins. What he's saying is, you guys are sinners. You're believers, but you're going to sin against one another. It's going to happen. But if you love one another earnestly, your sin won't destroy you. Your sin will not have the upper hand. It won't destroy the community that God has built. In this way, our love for one another it covers a multitude of sins. So that's what he's saying there. And then he says in verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And this is a very practical way to display love. It's to invite others into our home and serve them and to do it joyfully and eagerly. Look at verse 10. He says... and. Let's pay careful attention to what he says here. And again, we're, 
We're looking at what does it look like to suffer well together. So verse 10, he says, As each has received the gift, use it to serve one another. So the idea is God has given each one of us gifts, talents, experiences, skills, interests. Even your own interests were given to you to serve other people with. And so as each has been given a gift, Peter says, use those gifts to serve one another. That's the purpose of the gifts that God gives us. It's to serve each other. Notice what he says immediately after this. He says, use your gifts to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That's an important word, grace. What this means is that when we pray that God would show his grace to us, Integrity Church, or we, we pray for God to extend grace to somebody somewhere, one of the primary ways that he's going to do this is by giving gifts to believers for them to use to serve other people. When we faithfully use our gifts to serve one another, what we're doing is being good stewards of God's grace. It's as if God is showing his grace to this person, and he's doing it through you, through your service, through your love. So if you serve on Sunday morning, God is serving those people through you. You're actually a tool or a conduit of God's grace towards other people. When you serve your spouse and you devote time and energy to serve your kids, that is God's grace going to them and it's coming through you. That's what it means to be good stewards of God's grace. So God has given us gifts and interest and skills and experiences. All those things are to be used to serve other people. That's God's grace to them. Peter then gives a couple of practical examples of this in verse 11. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the goal of our serving and loving one another is ultimately that God would be glorified. That the person you're serving or the group of people that you're serving, they would realize, hey, God is showing me love and grace right now. And he's doing it through this person. And so ultimately, God gets the credit for all of the loving and the serving that we do. It's him who gave us those gifts. And so Integrity Church... We are called to suffer together in this life. All of us, in one way or another, are going to experience the pain of living in a fallen world and being a fallen human being. My hope is that you and I would arm ourselves with the same mindset that Christ had when he faced suffering. He was willing to obey God, even if it meant more suffering, even if it meant going to the cross in the place of sinful people. And so may we follow his example. And don't forget, he was able to do what he did because he trusted his father. And he understood that his father is the ultimate judge. And so nobody's getting away with anything. 
when we're mistreated, we don't need to retaliate. We can trust that our Father in heaven will do what's right in the end. And may we also be reminded that the gospel is our only hope this morning of being made right with God. This is why the gospel was preached and continues to be preached even now. And finally, because our time here is temporary and we're called to suffer together, let's continue loving one another earnestly and displaying God's grace to one another. And may we live this way so that God gets all the credit and so that he gets all the glory. May that be our greatest goal in all that we do. If you would, pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word.